organize a massive walkout. We have a big rally and then we decide to pay. This is on a Wednesday afternoon where the president has his, I can't, you can't make this up, free speech class. So he <laughs> runs away. Like he, it, 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 it's as though like it's something out of a movie. The rest of the teams will take a cue from that and say, well, if the Yankees aren't going to spend $30 million on this guy, then I don't need to either. So if they are purging hundreds of thousands of voters from the rolls, to then say to your volunteers, go re-register those voters, battle government suppression with volunteer efforts, it's not a fair fight. More than 40,000 healthcare workers across the West Coast would have, if necessary, walked off the job in their fight for safe staffing and wage justice in the Inland Empire. We had a complaint of various grievances before COVID-19. And out of the 1,700 cases, about 60 to 75 percent of them actually were wasted. They were wow. complaining that they were not paid, they were uh, cheated. Described by the president at the time, Anwar Sadat, as the uprising of thieves, the Egyptian people called it by a different name, the bread uprising. If they can send one billionaire up in space, why can't they send them all? If we think of a reason that we need you back here, we'll be sure to give you a call. Welcome to this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. I'm Chris Garlock. To hear more labor shows, go to laborradionetwork.org, where you can search by name, topic, and even location. 2021 may be coming to an end, but workers' struggles continue, and those fights are reflected in many of this week's shows. On the Work Stoppage podcast, the crew were joined by Charlie, a striking PhD student from Columbia University who talks about what their union's demands are and recounts a walkout involving the president of the university and his class on, wait for it, free speech. Then, Alex Baisley and Robert Wagner discuss the Major League Baseball lockout on the Working People podcast. On The Rick Smith Show, David Pepper reports on the slow death of democracy in the States while we hear about the fight for healthcare heroes at Kaiser Permanente on the Solidarity Works podcast. During the lockdown, millions of migrant workers were sent home unpaid and many were forced to pay their own way back after already being in debt to get a job in their destination country. But wage theft started long before the pandemic. This week's episode of the Solidarity Center podcast highlights the struggles of migrant workers for decent working conditions and comes a few days before the International Migrants Day, today, December 18th. Then, on a working class history, we learn about the forces and events leading up to the Bread Intifada in Egypt in 1977. We wrap up this week's show with some of last Sunday's evening of Favorite and Sacred Songs concert by the DC Labor Chorus, which we aired on my own show, Your Rights at Work, here in Washington, DC. That's all ahead on the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. 
here's the show. everybody to a very special episode of Work Stoppage. We are all here, your three hosts, John, Lena, and Dan, joined by a very special guest, Charlie. And without too much ado, since we're handling a pretty cool subject today and we're going to get right into it for you, we are talking to Charlie from the Student Workers of Columbia. Charlie, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yes, thanks for having me. I'm Charlie, he, him, his pronouns. I am a second year PhD student in the history department at Columbia, organizer, strike captain, and records committee at SWC UAW 2110 Student Workers of Columbia. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. The The workers right now have been on strike for several weeks. I, I know there's been a lot going on the past week, but could you get into the, the basics of what the student workers at Columbia are fighting for with the strike that you're on right now? Like what prompted the organizing in the strike? Sure. The short version of it is that we're fighting for our first contract with the university. We got recognition from the university a few years ago, really from the NLRB, which prompted the university to start bargaining in 2018. And it's just been a progressive fight for a contract ever since. There was a strike in 2018 and then a strike at the beginning of this year. And now we're on strike again and just chipping away at Columbia trying to get a you know, good and fair contract. Our major demands are obviously compensation. New York City is a very expensive city to live in. We're fighting for real recourse and neutral arbitration for various forms of harassment, be it sexual, racial, etc. We're fighting for full recognition of our unit as per the definition put out by the NLRB in their decision. We're fighting for dental and vision and some real form of union security as opposed to an open shop. Child care is a big thing. Better health care in general. We used to have a better health care plan from Columbia. Columbia did away with that unilaterally. Those are the big things. And then there are various smaller articles as well. The fight for a contract has been going on for a long time. And even just, just in this year, you all were on strike earlier in the spring. And so... A, can you just tell us what that strike was like? So we hold the SAV. We ultimately determine that we're going to go on strike. What we did at the beginning of November to give us enough time to kind of build, to organize the unit, while at the same time giving us enough time to have a meaningfully long strike. A week before the strike, we have a massive, we organize a massive walkout where some number, a few hundred, I can't remember off the top of my head, but many. People walk out from their classes and labs, et cetera, gather. We have a big rally, and then we decide to pay. This is on a Wednesday afternoon where the president has his, I can, you can't make this up, free speech class. We <laughs> get the crew to march on the building where the president has his class, which is in kind of a side plaza. And we're all just chanting outside and... I and the other organizers looked around and were like, we hadn't really expected this many people to show up because we're at the end of the day, we were used to COVID times organizing, which was just, mm -hmm. we didn't have that kind of energy. And we had tons of people, the ton of energy and a ton of undergrads really angry and ready to disrupt things. And so we're like, yeah, I guess we'll go inside. 
And we do. And some of our amazing undergraduate comrades lead the charge into the classroom. And only a handful of people go in, but they're chanting in the classroom and there's videos of it that circulate. The president, because he's a spineless individual, immediately says, this is what makes the First Amendment so difficult. And then evacuates, <laughs> evacuates quickly and like frantically himself and his security guard out of the building and cancel the rest of the class. Yeah, because like you said, this uh, guy, Lee Bollinger, a.k.a. Presbo, he's like his whole deal is that he's a constitutional law professor who fo who specializes in free speech issues, right? He's yes, he's he teaches and works on First Amendment issues, free speech, etc. And we're just like, OK, so he <laughs> runs away like he, it, it, it's as though like it's something out of a movie where like his security yeah. guards are like filing him out to the secret passageway <laughs> and we're all just like all right where now we all go out of the building down 116th street to his mansion and kind of protest outside of there for a bit and at this point we realize that we have the power of solidarity has escaped our control as organizers and we're like we should probably get Rain control of bit. things Right, Indeed. Right, we yeah. like we haven't even started striking yet. And so we eventually end things. And but yeah, so the important thing about that day, A, is that Columbia sees very clearly that we are not playing around Two, a clip taken by a student in the class makes it onto the Rachel Maddow show. This kind of kicks off this. It's like as part of a segment about strikes happening across the United States. We're grouped together with the definite three-day Harvard strike, which was supposed to mm -hmm. evolve into an indefinite strike. It didn't. It's a different story entirely. But yeah, we make it onto national television for the first time ever. And that kind of cascades into this first wave of press. wanted to thank you so much for, for doing this interview with us. It was very enlightening on so many different aspects of this that are not exactly clear from the sometimes fractured reporting on some of these things. So, uh, again, thank you so much for being with us. Indeed. Thank you for having me. Right. Solidarity forever. Solidarity right on. Solidarity, Solidarity forever. My name is Bobby Wagner. I am one of the co-hosts of Tipping Pitches, a baseball podcast about labor and the lovely sport of baseball. And I'm Alex. I'm the other co-host of Tipping Pitches, and uh, we're really excited to be here today. All right. Well, welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today, brought to you in partnership with In These Times Magazine and The Real News Network, produced by Jules Taylor and supported entirely by beautiful listeners like you. So as y'all heard there at the top, we got two special guests on the pod, Bobby and Alex from the great podcast Tipping Pitches, which everyone should check out. Um, and as you probably guessed, um, given that Tipping Pitches is about baseball and labor, uh, we're going to be talking about the MLB lockout that's going on right now. Um, you know, I'm sure that folks, even if you're not sports fans, you've probably heard that Major League Baseball has, uh, for the first time in 26 years, 
kind of reached, uh, you know, this this point of a lockout after uh, the league and the players union um, could not come to a new agreement uh, earlier this month. And uh, we're going to dig into that. So, um, you know, guys, I I, want to kind of turn things over to you and ask you to sort of walk us through the contours here of of how we got to this point. So let's start there and then maybe kind of zoom out to talk about what the hell is going on right now. So the lockout is effectively management, in this case, Major League Baseball, one of the four major sports leagues in America, telling their players, their workers, um, not to come to work anymore. And, you know, the language in Manfred's letter, as you're sort of alluding to, is, uh, let's say, filtered through a certain perspective, um, forced to institute a lockout legally there's nothing saying that they needed to institute this lockout there more than welcome to continue on with next MLB season with no new contract. The terms of the old collective bargaining agreement would stay into effect had they not instituted this lockout, but that would allow the players the opportunity to at some point during the 2022 baseball season to go on strike. And this is what happened uh, with the last major work stoppage or the last work stoppage of any kind in major league baseball, um, which was the 1994 and 1995 player strike, which is largely thought of as the most contentious at the time. It was thought of as the most damaging work stoppage in the sports history. Um, But what really happened and what Manfred is not really saying in between the lines here, what really happened is that the players went on strike and the owners all ran to their corners scared because they realized that the players had the ability to just completely put an end to their product midway through a season and they don't want that to ever happen again. So they instituted the lockout now during the offseason to avoid, you know, giving the players that uh, ability to withhold their labor midway through a season because they know that that provides them a certain amount of leverage that a lockout during the offseason when not as many people are paying attention, not as many people are trying to go to baseball games. Um, it, it just won't allow the players that to have as much leverage as they did in 94. Yeah, we've seen decreased levels of competition a- across the league, um, both at the at the top and the bottom. the The bottom tier teams, uh, the the ones who are maybe in the lower third of of payroll, don't have a lot of incentive to go out and make a big splash, especially when their payrolls are being subsidized, as I mentioned earlier, by this luxury tax, right? These um, these big market teams that are willing to go out and spend money. Uh, so they're happy to kind of rest on their laurels a little bit and trot out a team of young 21, 22, 23-year-olds who may or may not be at the height of their game at that point, but it doesn't really matter because they're they're able to keep costs down. And meanwhile, at the top end of things, these rich teams like the, like the Dodgers, like the Red Sox, like the Yankees have been able to get away with saying, we... We've reached the amount of money that we are willing to spend because of this, uh, because of this tax on overages on spending above two hundred twenty million dollars. Uh, we we're done. We can't spend any more money. 
Um, and it has meant that it dampens the market for the rest of the league, for the rest of the players. Because if the Yankees aren't willing to go out and spend whatever it takes to sign the game's biggest star at the moment, Mike Trout or Shohei Otani or, uh, or, or Garrett Cole or Max Scherzer, whoever it is, um, then the rest of the teams will take a cue from that and say, well, if the Yankees aren't going to spend $30 million on this guy, then I don't need to either. And that's why we've seen in recent years, for the, f- the first time in history, player salaries have actually started to go down. The contracts that are being handed out, uh, in, in total, the, the amount of money that they're making has been going down in the last couple of years because owners have, have wised up to this fact that they can get away with, uh, I mean, we, we've talked on, on our show about the, the C word collusion. And (laughs) while, while that brings to mind, you know, 30 people in a back room twirling their mustaches and saying they're not going to pay players. It doesn't even have to be that nefarious because these rules that are in place effectively encourage teams, uh, to, kind of sit on their hands when it comes to spending on players. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. Quote of the day comes from Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown. He said, quote, Republican politicians are weaponizing redistricting to choose their voters rather than the other way around. He said, we can't let them get away with weakening voters' voices in our democracy. He says, quote, it is time to end the filibuster and protect voting rights in America. And and you can't disagree with that. Uh, And we've been saying this for months now. It's now time to actually get some action and and do something about it. And here to share some thoughts on why this is imperative and maybe how we get to go about it. I've asked David Pepper to come talk with us. David is the former head of the Ohio Democratic Party. He's also the author of Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. David, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks for having me. So uh, you got your state senator saying, hey, uh, we got to end this filibuster thing. We got to get something done on voting rights. We've got to take back some of the control because guess what? 2022 is just around the corner. Yeah. And he, Ohio, we, myself and him and others, we've seen it up close. It is what they're doing to these states. We're basically crying out to these senators. A lot of these states no longer really resemble functioning democracies, whether it's gerrymandered congressional seats gerrymandered state house and state senate seats, other ways of voter suppression, like purging the vote for infrequent voting. It really is out of control. It's at this point, just to, to, to make it clear how bad it is, you essentially have a group of people in these state houses in Ohio and elsewhere who themselves have never really been in real elections. They haven't really been in democracy. It, all they've known is a set of rigged elections. They're basically doing what all they've known and that's why it's the federal government, which literally has a duty in the Constitution to make sure that all states are democracies. And I'm glad Sheriff Brown is calling upon that. Others are. It's late in the game. And, and I really it sounds dramatic unless the stakes. They really should not go home for recess until this is done. I agree. You start getting into 22 as the election start cycle starts. It's already started. It, it's too late. And they've got to show this is a serious as those of us living through it know that it's serious. But we've been talking about this for a long time, 
And yeah. the other time when there was a chance to do something about it was during the Obama years. And Obama just said, if they're going to do that, we have to go get more votes. There's a point at right. which you can't make up for the number of votes that they're blocking. You just can't do it. You can't. It, it, we're a great case study. It's not even right to ask these voters. We're talking about brutal voter suppression. So if they are purging hundreds of thousands of voters from the rolls to then say to your volunteers, go re-register those voters, battle government suppression with volunteer efforts, it's not a fair fight. And at a certain point, and this is part of what happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016, she spent so much of her time re-registering purge voters, we all know she didn't get enough time with swing voters all over states like Ohio. So once you start forcing campaigns to make up for absolute suppression by government, it's a losing proposition. Every once in a while it may work, but it's not the right thing to ask folks to do. And it's in the end, you, you won't ever make up the gap for brutal gerrymandering that rigs elections in the suppression of hundreds of thousands or millions of voters, you're just not going to be able to do that on a voluntary basis. I've had conversations about your state of Ohio and mine of Pennsylvania as well. Where I live in Pennsylvania, there was the one election year where Democrats got a half a million more votes, but only won five of the 18 congressional seats because it is so badly gerrymandered. And Ohio, the same thing, only the difference is in Pennsylvania, Democrats usually win statewide offices while Republicans usually win them in Ohio. So what I get from people is going, well, you know, Ohio's a, a solid red state. And I'm going, not so much. It's a gerrymandered state. And the reason right. I think they win those statewide races is because a lot of people have gone, what's the point of me voting in a 65-35 district? There, there are a couple of things going on. Our general breakdown is somewhere Republicans vote in these congressional races statewide for Republicans in about the you know low to mid-50s. Democrats, even in these terrible gerrymandered districts, added up around Ohio, we're getting about 45 or 46. A fair map would mean out of 15 districts, we have seven in a good year, six in a not so good year. The, the map they're proposing is literally 13-2 or 12-3. It's outrageous. The last decade, even when, even in an Obama blue year, even in a year where Sherrod won by eight, the map was always the same outcome, 12 Republicans, four Democrats. It's total, and, and none of them were even close. It's totally rigged. Uh, of course, Democrats aren't walking in and saying we deserve 13 out of 15 seats or 12 out of 15. But us trying to get, let, let's say Democrats pushed a map that was somehow 11 Democrats and four Republicans. That's as out of whack with how Ohio voters are voting as the current Republican proposed map. So they're going way beyond what would be normal, anywhere close to fair. And you add it all up in Ohio and Pennsylvania, other states, you, that way you guarantee the entire Congress for a decade. Right. And at some point, this looks more like how Russia runs democracy and uh, I'm sorry, Putin runs democracy in Russia and Orban in Hungary than it does America. And at some point, we've got to wake up to that problem. And, and here's the good news. The, uh, the bills that pass the House and that is now in front of the Senate correct for this and many other problems if they simply pass it. I'm right there with you, David. I appreciate the time. Great stuff, man. Thanks so much. Thanks. Take care. Good stuff. David Pepper, former head of the Ohio Democratic Party. Quick break. Right back after this. Stick around.
morning hours of Saturday, November 13th, United Steelworkers Local 7600 reached a tentative agreement with healthcare giant Kaiser Permanente. More than 40,000 healthcare workers across the West Coast would have, if necessary, walked off the job that following Monday in their fight for safe staffing and wage justice in the Inland Empire. These workers at Local 7600 in Southern California include respiratory and anesthesia techs, LVNs, environmental service workers, dietary aides, engineers, medical assistants, appointment clerks, and phlebotomists, just to name a few. It's been a long two years for these workers, who endured wave after wave of the COVID-19 pandemic throughout 2020, and who continue to do so today, as 2021 comes to a close. To say they needed a win is an understatement. On November 13th, they were able to take a step closer to victory. And just last week, the local ratified this hard-won agreement at 95%. Today, I'm sitting down with Local 7600 President Michael Barnett and Vice President Norberto Gomez about this monumental fight that brought thousands of healthcare workers together to win this contract and what the local's plans are for the future. From educating and organizing a membership of more than 7,400 workers to building the local's first ever communication and action team, this month's long operation was a team effort and we're going to hear all about it. I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers Union. We're here to have conversations and start conversations about the past, present, and future of the labor movement, as well as talk about some of the work the union is doing with USW activists leading the way. Make sure to follow the United Steelworkers Union on Twitter, at Steelworkers, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming service, like Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and more. I'm Chelsea Engel, proud member of the United Steelworkers, and welcome again to Solidarity Works. Before we kind of dive into the fight for a contract, um, I figured maybe we could even go back before that, um, particularly to 2020 when the pandemic started and it obviously impacted healthcare workers and still does. So can you tell me a bit just about what some of your members experienced and how that impacted everyone kind of coming into 2021 preparing for a new contract? You know, when the pandemic hit, it was just nobody was prepared, right? Um, and then there were zero supplies for everybody, right? So, you know, there was concern, there was, you know, people were upset, um, angry, scared. And then after that, it was just, you know, lost and lost and lost and lost after that, because now we were dealing with having to take bodies to the morgue and throwing them into the freezer trucks in the back and um, all of that. So it just took a, like just a hundred percent total flip of what we were, what we were doing before. Right. Um, and everybody's just, you know, the short, then you have short staffing on top of it. Um, 
everybody was just like burnt out. You know, they're still burnt out. It was just a, it was a terrible thing. It was a terrible thing. And how did that kind of manifest going into negotiations? Were there any goals that came directly out of your experience from the pandemic? Um, yeah, so for, for us, um, you know, we realized right away because our employees were so burnt out um, from, you know, the COVID and the strain and the PTSD that many of the members were, were going through that we were going to have to, um, you know, that they were going to demand a, a good contract um, going into bargaining, right? And so we were clear at the bargaining table uh, from the very beginning that, you know, our members, um, the, the nurses union, UNAC, you know, everybody, uh, you know, it was going to be, there was going to be no way that we we're going to be able to, uh, you know, ratify a contract that had any, any sort of concessions and that didn't include, include um, some sort of recognition of what they went through during the pandemic. And so it made it uh, a lot of pressure on, on the le union leadership, right, to make sure that we, uh, you know, did, we were able to deliver that. I'm um, telling you, Michael did a hell of a job at the bargaining table making sure uh, he got what he had to get for the, for our members. Although it's not 100% parity and it's not 100% all the way there, uh, it's a foot in the door and, and it's 20 years in the making and we finally got it done. So it was awesome. So we really feel like, you know, this was not just about, you know, ma making sure that people are, are having fair wages and, and getting compensated for, you know, doing the work that they, you know, deserve. But it's really about, you know, making sure that we have quality uh, candidates filling these jobs and they retain and, you know, because Kaiser is really a, a great place to work. Today's episode was the last episode of the year. We'll be back in January for more. Until then, take care and stay safe, siblings. Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions, and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. I'm also the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C. Our guest today will describe a campaign across Asia that is raising awareness about the untold numbers of people who migrate for work but who are not paid and are forced to work long hours with no days off, all forms of wage theft. Michael Joy Kim speaks to us from Sri Lanka, where he is co-founder and director of the Plantation Rural Education and Development Organization, PREDO. Credo is part of the Justice for Wage Theft campaign formed by migrant rights organizations during the COVID crisis. So someone is leaving a country either because they need to pay off debt and they can't make enough locally, or they're trying to improve their lives and livelihoods. They land in a country and work and either don't get paid the wages they're promised or owed, or in some cases don't get paid at all. I know that your organization, Predo, is working with the Justice for Wage Theft campaign, and that campaign began during the early months of the COVID pandemic. Wage theft became a sort of a common phenomenon where they complained of various grievances before COVID-19. And out of the 1,700 cases, about 60 to 75% of them actually were wage theft. They were wow. complaining that 
they were not paid, they were cheated, they were promised they were paid later, they were not paid over time. But then suddenly after COVID-19, large number of people started complaining that they were not paid, they lost the employment and it became a huge problem. Can you tell us a little bit about what the campaign is doing to help end wage theft and what are its goals? Surveys were done to actually find out how it has affected the migrant worker. So locally, we were doing surveys and also coordinating with other countries where we were trying to find out whether the situation is same, whether it's in Bangladesh, India or the other sending countries, the situation is almost the same. So it was uh, important for us to coordinate with the organization working for migrant workers and then make this as a sort of an issue which need to be taken up at the regional level. But it was important for us to get local governments. You see in Sri Lanka, migrant workers, the most, the in, I think in most of the countries is the, the, the exchange the highest. So the government need to look into their issues. And they suddenly became a problem during COVID-19 because the, their own countries were not willing to take them in. They simply forgot what the contribution that they were, were making all this time, completely forgot what they were doing, what the contribution they made. Bringing them back became a very big problem in the sense now in Sri Lanka and also in other countries where the migrant worker had to normally a migrant worker would be paid a return ticket by the employer. So nothing of that happened. The migrant worker had to pay his own money for return ticket, pay his own money for quarantine, pay his own money to get back home. So he completely lost everything. Now, if you just imagine a person who had borrowed money to go abroad, and then he, he also borrows money to come back. Because to come back also for the return ticket for quarantine, he had to still borrow money. So we were trying to take this up as an issue and then telling the government, now, if you want people to migrate and then contribute to the economy of the country, then the government needs to negotiate with the the foreign employment ministry. For example, we were uh, in the campaign telling that they should appoint a special commission to look into the wage theft of migrant workers. So this may be something that we do in Sri Lanka, but we also share this with other countries so that the other countries also take this up as a matter where the authority that is responsible for migrant worker appoints a commission to see as to how wage theft had uh, occurred. And then what is the steps that the government can take through a bilateral agreement and then ensure that wage theft does not take take in the future and also set up an emergency fund because, the, as I said, if the migrant worker is subjected to wage theft, that means that is doubly burdened with paying maybe two amounts of debt and is, is so pressed. So there must be some emergency fund to support uh, such people. Michael Joy Kim, co-founder and director of Preto, 
Thank you for telling us about the Justice for Wage Theft campaign. And thank you for all your efforts on behalf of those who migrate to improve their lives. I'm Shauna Bader-Blau. Thanks for listening. This is Working Class History. On the 18th of January 1977, Egypt erupted into a huge popular uprising against the government's removal of food subsidies. For two days, hundreds of thousands of people across the country were variously involved in strikes, riots, occupations, looting and sabotage, while around 70 people were killed and over 500 injured. Described by the president at the time, Anwar al-Sadat, as the uprising of thieves, the Egyptian people called it by a different name, the Bread Uprising. We spoke to Egyptian journalist and revolutionary socialist Hossam el-Hamalawi. As Hossam explains, after 1968, groups of young communists started popping up all over Egypt. However, in 1970, Nasser died suddenly and was replaced by Anwar al-Sadat, who promised to liberate Sinai from Israeli occupation. In 1973, the Egyptian army crossed the Suez and liberated a strip along the canal in what would commonly become known as the Yom Kippur War. While in reality the performance of the Egyptian army during the conflict was actually quite poor, Sadat was able to use the war to lobby the American government into giving him some leeway so as to assure them that Egypt was moving from the Soviet to the American camp. As a result, this allowed Sadat to present the war as a huge victory. However, as a consequence, with questions of national defence now seemingly resolved, social questions now began to take precedence. Okay, so we fought the war, we liberated our land, now... Can we please now talk about our domestic uh, situation? Remember, this was a war economy. Everything was geared towards the army. And if anyone objected to austerity measures or to cuts in wages or to cuts in subsidies, they were told that you were in a state of war and you should not be selfish. You should not, you should not be greedy. Now that the war was over and Sadat was saying, and the days of the socialism of poverty, That's how he used to describe socialism. The socialism of poverty are over and now we're going to open up our economy and uh, the investments and foreign direct investments are going to flood into the country and we will finally get to live like any Western capitalist advanced societies. So this gave boost actually to the labor movement because on the one hand, the war was over. Number two, Sadat could not any longer ask the public to to accept austerity or to accept dictatorial measures because we're in a state of war. So there wasn't this ideological hegemony or ideological excuse. Thirdly, is that in 1974, that's when Sadat started the Infitah policy. Infitah means open door. So the open door policy was actually a package of neoliberal reforms. This opened the door not just for more austerity, but it also opened the door for more struggles. In 1975, the Helwan workers went on strike. Most of these strikes used to start over bonuses, over disparity in wages where workers feel that their socialist managers are getting really paid quadruples and and tenfold their salaries, and they felt that this shouldn't be the case. They were uh, striking over abusive treatment in the factories. So as you can see, they were mainly bread and butter issues. But once you start striking over bread and butter issues, 
you are striking against the state managers. You're striking against state policies. So even when you struggle over economic issues, you get into a direct conflict with the forces of the state. So you start political generalization right away. So in 1975, the Mahalla workers were in control of their town and were in control of their factories, and they were protesting in the streets. And they stormed the houses of their managers, and they got the expensive artifacts and expensive clothes of their managers, and they hung them on the trees in their town so as to show everyone what their socialist managers were really living uh, at the end of the day compared to the average worker uh, in Mahalla. And the state went ballistic. The entire town was under siege. So in 1976, the following year, the strikes continued and they spilled over to most of the other sectors in the economy. There is like a very symbolic event that happened in 1976 that just shows you to what extent the regime had lost its legitimacy. That, you know, every few years, Sadat or our president, our former presidents, they used to have a plebiscite where it's not elections. It's like you go and vote. Do you want Sadat to continue as a president or not? And people would go and vote yes and no. And of course, each time Sadat would win by 99%. So after a plebiscite where Sadat basically uh, won it by 99%, the Cairo public transport authority workers, these are the bus drivers and, and the technician workers, they went on strike and they brought the capital to an entire halt, to a complete stop. In less than 24 hours after supposedly Sadat had won the presidency by 99%, which shows you what sort of legitimacy did this guy have. So when January 1977 came and the uprising happened, and we will discuss this in a bit, what was the trigger? Your listeners and our comrades everywhere, they have to understand that 77 did not just happen out of the blue. That's all we've got time for in this episode. I hope you enjoyed the episode and thanks for listening. Welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock. We've got a very special treat for you today. The DC Labor Chorus's evening of favorite and sacred songs. Live stream from the Blue House production Soundstage last Sunday night, this annual concert is one of the highlights of the local labor calendar. The DC Labor Course is directed by my union sister Elise Bryant and made up of labor and community activists who love to sing for peace, for joy, and a belief in the power of song to touch hearts and minds. Here they are. Enjoy the show.
a favorite and sacred song. Now, some people get a little confused by that title because they expect a bunch of religious songs, but the fact is, we believe in the definition of religion being that which binds us together. And for us, it's social justice. For us, it's working for climate change. It's the right to vote. And so we're celebrating that this evening and dedicating our show to all the workers out there, the cultural workers and the conscientious folks who are making this place a better place for everybody. All righty. Yes, there are some strange things going on in the news these days. Like uh, people who are like flying up into space just to go flying up into space when that money can be used to feed the hungry, give housing to the homeless. But we have a friend here, member of the course, who's been writing parodies, and this is his latest, Billionaires in Space. Dave Sands. We have to admit it was startling when you streaked through the skies or our town. You may think we're finally looking up at you, but the fact is we're still looking down. If they can send one billionaire up in space, why can't they send them all? If we think of a reason that we need you back here, we'll be sure to give you a call. Take your time, take your friends, I hope you're having a ball. If they can send one billionaire up in space, well, why can't they send them all? Well, it used to be the plutocracy never needed their own personal star. Just give them supermodels and super yachts and crackers full of caviar. But now it seems that a rich man's dreams involve surfing through the stratosphere. Well, if that's the case, I say enjoy outer space. We'll be happy to stay home and cheer. If they can send one billionaire up in space, well, why can't they send them all? If we think of a reason that we need you back here, we'll be sure to give you a call. Take your time, take your friends. I hope you're having a ball. If they can send one billionaire up in space, why can't they send them all? Please be so kind as to leave behind the password to your banking accounts. Bet you never knew what obscene wealth can do when you split it up and share it out in smaller amounts. Book that ego trip on your rocket ship and you won't lack for company. You'll be a perfect match there in your cosmic patch Floating around with the other debris If they can send one billionaire up in space Why can't they send them all? If we think of a reason that we need you back here We'll be sure to give you a call Take your time, take your friends I hope you're having a ball Send one billionaire up in space Why can't they send them all? Oh, help these poor billionaires, Mr. Jones.
didn't write that part, actually. Now it just may be a Miss Society As you're sailing the celestial beyond We're sure you'll find a role Hey, be your own black hole And how we gonna miss you If you don't stay gone It's a little late for a re-entry date As you're orbiting from pole to pole You should have thought ahead Cause you're now in code red Since you laid off everybody back in mission control If they can send one billionaire up in space Why can't they send them all? If we think of a reason that we need you back here We'll be sure to give you a call Take your time, take your rest Hope you're having a ball Send one billionaire up in space Why can't they send them all? If they can send one billionaire up in space Why can't they send them all? That'll do it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon, Mel Smith, and me, and our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.